I'm the sort of person, I don't take no for an answer. I always believe there's a way to achieve what you want to achieve. The self-doubt is just so antithetical to what it takes to be a successful entrepreneur. You have to have guts. You have to have this crazy, almost irrational belief in your own ability to get something done in your own vision. I'm Carly Zakin. I'm Danielle Weisberg. Welcome to Skim from the Couch. This podcast is where we go deep on career advice from women who have lived it. From the good stuff like hiring and growing a team to the rough stuff like negotiating your salary and giving or getting hard feedback. We started the Skim from a Couch, so what better place to talk it all out than where it began on a couch? Hey everyone, this show might sound a bit different today because we're skimming from three different couches. The skim is still working from home for the time being because of COVID-19. Today, Lily Gordon is our guest on Skimmed from the Couch. She is the founder and CEO of First Aid Beauty, a clean beauty company on a rescue mission to solve skin challenges. First Aid Beauty has also recently announced an initiative to rescue college graduates from their student debt through a new million-dollar commitment called Fab Aid. Lily, thank you for joining us. Welcome to Skin from the Couch. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. Uh, Let's start with the question that we ask everyone, which is skim your resume for us. Well, I have an undergraduate degree in math from Bowdoin College and a graduate degree in MBA from the University of Chicago. My first job was in the operations research section of Arthur D. Little, and then I left there to work for a startup company called Analysis Group, an economic and financial consulting firm, where I became a partner. You're asking me to go way, way back. This is how we learn interesting things. Okay. So then at the time, this was in the late 1980s, early 1990s. Corporate takeovers were a giant thing. Shareholders and boards of directors and CEOs of major public corporations were battling with each other. So I got into the business of corporate governance. I was giving advice to large companies, institutional investors. I was doing a lot of writing in academic journals. I was truly a talking head during that point. And then I joined the Bass family, certain members of the Bass family, from Fort Worth, Texas, and we raised over almost $2 billion to do corporate governance investing, activist investing, it would be called today. From that point, I made a totally unexpected segue into the beauty business and um, became a partner for Fresh, well-known beauty company, and did that for a number of years. We sold to LVMH. I Moved on after a couple of years, did some consulting, hopped back into the world of corporate governance um, as a partner in a startup hedge fund. The founder of the hedge fund was killed in a tragic accident about a month and a half after I started. And I was like, what am I going to do? And I decided to start my own beauty company. And that was First Aid Beauty. And this has been my last job. And here we are. So we're going to get into a lot of that. But before we do that, I'm just curious, like, what is something we would all be shocked to know about you? Well, I don't know how shocking this is, but I'm totally addicted to Sudoku. And some people (laughs) meditate 
But Sudoku and Ken Ken puzzles are literally my meditation when I want to turn off all the noise. That's interesting because that part of my brain, that would really stress me out. I always think it's interesting when people are really good at Sudoku because I am not. Well, I said it's not surprising because given my analytical and my math background, it figures that I would be doing something like that for relaxation. I want to kind of dig into to your career. You've obviously, you know, you've quite a journey that has switched, switched industries, switched roles. I'm really just curious, you know, you had spent half of your career working in finance, economics, as you said, you're a math major. How did you find beauty? Like what made you feel like this was the right category for you? You know, a good friend of mine has always advised me to be a river and open to opportunities. And when I was in that fund with the Bass family, it was actually winding down and I had a lot of time on my hands. And I was a big fan of Fresh, which is a Boston-based company. And literally on the weekends, you know, if it was a rainy day, I'd say, oh, let's go visit Fresh because I just love to smell everything and see the store. And I got to know the founders. So during the period when the fun wound down, I mean, everything happens for a reason. Of course, I'm shopping at the local mall. I run into Lev and Alina. I hadn't seen them for years. And a week later, they call me and say, you know, Lily, or they fondly refer to me as Lilichka, can you help us build the company and bring it to the next level? So, you know, they really were interested in me, not my great creative skills and my skincare knowledge, but to bring what I had, which was the financial and analytical capability to help them grow and push their company forward. I think what's interesting too about your story, and, and we actually have found this a lot on this show, that people come up and make a lot of progress in one industry for a while. And then something kind of sparks a pivot. We get this question a lot from our listeners. What's some advice for people that have spent years building up a network and a core competency in one industry and then think they can use it to do something different, but aren't sure necessarily how to take those first steps or how to present that on a resume or when talking to someone in an interview? You know, I think that's an interesting question because it really depends. I mean, that question can go two ways. Are they taking the same skill set and just applying it to a different industry, which seems like pretty easy if you're a CFO of, you know, Apple, you can become the CFO of Estee Lauder, for example. But if you're like me, you know, a director of a consulting company in finance, and then you want to go into beauty. I didn't have to try to do it. It just came my way. But I, I, I think there are a couple of things. I think you really have to understand what your passion is because passion is contagious and passion is something I think people are naturally attracted to. I think you also, you know, have to use your connections. You might say, well, you know, I don't have connections because I was in this industry. Well, I found connections. I found You know, it just takes one person to get on the pathway to connecting. And so I think, you know, connecting with people in the industry that you're interested in and, you know, really, really conveying your story, your passion, your skill set and why this is right is is the pathway to do it. It, it, It's hard work. 
You talk about it's about that one connection. And I think philosophically, like I'm, I'm like nodding my head. I'm like, yeah, I'm totally with you. I think what we've heard a lot from people listening to the show is, yeah, I get that. But like, literally, what do I ask? What if I don't know exactly what I want to do? Like, I want to wait to make that connection till I know what my real ask is. How do you advise kind of approaching that? You know, I think you have to do a lot of background studying and learning. It's like when I started First Aid Beauty, I had to educate myself. Yes, I played a role in one particular beauty company, but I wasn't involved in the whole landscape of beauty. So I had to really educate myself. I used, you know, stores as my laboratories. I read every single thing I could find. I read, you know, I got my hands on research and I really got myself to the point where I knew what I wanted. So if somebody, you know, somebody shouldn't use that magic connection until, you know, and there are lots of industry groups that you can join, you know, and now with the internet, you know, even LinkedIn, it's so much easier. So go to the lower level connections, you know, that's not hard to do. Figure it out, figure out, you know, what your plan is, why you want to pivot, you know, what's your story that's compelling and passionate, and then, you know, go to the the pivotal connection, as it were. What do you think um, some advantages were coming into the beauty industry as an outsider of sorts? You know, I think... If I were an insider, I'd be stuck with the way of looking at it. And I think I came up with the idea for First Aid Beauty because I was an outsider. You know, there are no rules. There are no posts. There are no walls. There are no ceilings. You know, it's just I came at it as a true consumer. And it's funny, that was back before social media was a big thing, but beauty companies are relying on outsiders for product innovation. I was that outsider. I was that authentic person saying, you know, what is it that I want that I don't see? I didn't care whether, you know, a category was the fastest growing category in MPD. I always tell people, you know, well, I created the first prestige eczema cream, ultra repair cream. If I had looked at NPD and looked at the category size for, you know, prestige eczema creams, it didn't exist. You know, so I was free from the traditional ways of looking at things, which really made everything possible. And I could approach it without bias and more authenticity. Before we get into going out on your own, I want to talk about the deal you negotiated with Fresh and LVMH, which was a huge deal. What's your mindset when you approach a negotiation? Are there certain strategies that you think work well for you? Well, it's sort of interesting because years and years and years ago, I learned that a successful negotiation is one in which both parties feel they win one or both parties felt they lost. But when, you know, the one comes out feeling good and the other comes out feeling bad, that's not a successful negotiation. So I think when you go into a negotiation, you have to have a hierarchy of points. I mean, you know, basically when you're negotiating, you're going through the deal points, you know, there's price, there's employment related things, there's control issues. And I think you have to have that hierarchy. And then you, you know, the low 
things that are down low on the hierarchy, you're willing to give up. Of course, from the beginning, you act like those things are really important, you know. So you just can't go in with the expectation you're going to get every single thing. And then you have to know what the no, the deal breakers are. It could be price. The hierarchy is the clearest thing for me, the most important thing. And then, you know, what you're willing to give up and what you're not willing to give up. And that gives you a lot of capability flexibility to go back and forth, which will lead to a successful negotiation. So let's transition to first aid beauty. What was the white space that you saw that was different or you felt was not being seen by others? The spark was actually when I was a little girl. My I lived with my grandparents and my grandmother's name was Minnie Damsky. And she was one of six Damsky sisters. And those girls were all known for beautiful skin and great legs. What a great legacy. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, these girls would come, girls, right, um, would come over and they'd be yammering away. And I was literally mesmerized. I'd look at their skin. And of course, the only thing they used was Pond's cold cream, but none of them had ever, you know, looked at the sun in their lives. And they were wrinkled, but they had that skin, you know, glass skin, whatever you want to call it, that everybody wants. And that image just stuck in my head. I mean, for years and years and years. And then, you know, I went through adolescence and I had sensitive skin and I had a frustrating experience because, you know, there are no Sephora's and Ulta's and, you know, even if there were, probably couldn't afford them. So I'd go to the drugstore. One, I had to be really careful about what products I used. Two, I had eczema. So these, you know, heavy creams felt more like medicine. So the drugstores didn't have what I wanted. So when I went on the quest to start a beauty industry, I told you, a beauty business, I went into, you know, everywhere. And then the obvious came to my mind. I mean, the very, very obvious. And that was, if you had skin issues, sensitive skin, redness, eczema, you're probably shopping in the drugstore because the products you need weren't being offered in the likes of Sephora, Ulta, or back in the day when department store beauty counters were a thing. And I'm like, wow, she's going into Sephora. Maybe she's buying her anti-aging cream, but then she's getting her Cetaphil and her Eucerin at CVS. And that really was my aha, you know? And it, it wasn't obvious to me. I just had to, you know, when you learn something, whether it's an exercise, whether it's an instrument, you get to that moment where you sort of feel you know it so well, it's part of your bones. And I felt like, you know, I had to understand how the beauty industry worked in these different channels before I could see that. And then once I saw it, it was like so obvious. We love talking about like entrepreneurial hustle. And in doing research for this, we read, and I want you to tell me if this is true, that you cold called to get your products on shelves. I did. You know, I did a complete plan. I planned first aid beauty out to the sale practically back in the day. And I knew I wanted to launch in Sephora Alta and on QVC or HSN. Now, this was 10 years ago, okay? You weren't going to start a business online. People didn't do that 10 years ago. Um, and I 
came up with the products and I put together a very polished presentation and I didn't know anyone in Sephora, but somebody gave me the name of a buyer and I literally picked up the phone and the crazy thing is she answered and I told her who I was and, you know, in all honesty, I had cred because by that point, LVMH owned Sephora, LVMH owned Fresh. I was a partner at Fresh. So that gave me a lot of credibility. But merchants at Sephora are always looking for the next brand. And so I did that cold call. And on the basis of that, I got a face-to-face meeting in New York City in the LVMH Tower. And then they flew me out to San Francisco and the rest is history. But not only did I cold call Sephora, I cold called QVC too. What did you say? I think this is something we talk so much about, you know, so much of our story was around cold calling and just blind reach out. And we've had so many entrepreneurs on here who've had similar versions of this, depending on, you know, what their products are. But I think the thing that gets in people's way all the time, and I know that our listeners have talked to us about this, is just the fear. Like, what do you actually say? Well, with the Sephora person, I explained who I was. I explained my business concept and I told her that, you know, I would like the opportunity to present it to her and her merchants. That was step one. And then step two, I had a very polished presentation and that was sufficiently compelling that I went to the merchants. And so I said what it was, but QVC was a little more interesting because I was going to hire a rep group and the rep group took me in to meet with a merchant and the merchants at the end of the meeting, the merchant said, well, this isn't really my category. You should go see this other merchant. And we walked out of meeting and the potential rep group that I was going to hire said, oh, we don't have a very good relationship with her. And I'm like, oh, okay. And I waited and waited. I'm like, did you speak to her yet? And, you know, it was no, no, she won't return our calls, et cetera. But she's got the product. And so I said, do you mind giving me her direct dial number? And I'm going to call her. And I called her and she picked up. She said, I told her who I was. And she said, oh, yeah, I know your product. It's sitting here, you know, on a shelf. I said, great. I said, well, I'd love to talk to you about it. She said, well, let's set up a time, you know, next week or two, and I'll let you pitch. So basically we did that, and it was a telephone call, and I did the pitch on Ultra Repair Cream, why this was so unique, why this was so right for QBC. And she didn't say a word the whole time, and I finished, and she said thank you and hung up. And I got off the call. I'm like, oh, God, I guess I'm not going to launch a QVC. And then about three weeks later, I, you know, go home. I pick up my voicemail message. It's her assistant congratulating me on becoming part of a QVC. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. And then six months later, you know, I went on air and sold out. I'm the sort of person I don't take no for an answer. I always believe there's a way to achieve what you want to achieve. I mean, I just, for most things, you know, for most things. And I guess I had to hold on to that belief because the the self-doubt is just so antithetical to what it takes to be a successful entrepreneur. You have to have guts. You have to have this crazy, almost irrational belief 
and your own ability to get something done and your own vision that you're creating. What I really love about your story is that you're very intentional about everything that you did. And it's obviously easy to say that, you know, looking back, but I want you to walk us through P&G and, and kind of how that unfolded. You know, P&G was a very logical step for a couple of reasons. I mean, I was at the point where we had penetrated the major U.S. distribution. You know, we were there. And to really achieve that second wave of growth meant taking the company international, Southeast Asia, not so much Europe, but definitely China. And that takes a lot of capability And we could have done it ourselves and invested in the capability, or we could have partnered with a multinational global consumer products company that has done it successfully with so many brands. So, you know, for me at my age, because I'm in my mid-60s, it's like I didn't want to be doing this when I was 75, 80, which is probably how long it would have taken to do this ourselves. So it just, the time was right in terms of where I was in my trajectory, my personal trajectory and where the business was in the business trajectory. You said that when you started, you, you had really mapped out First Aid Beauty. How did you think about the exit? Did you think about that in the timeline that you laid out? I think a lot of people go back and forth about building to a specific endpoint. I think that's really, really interesting question. I didn't have the exit perfectly timed. I mean, I had a mentor who was on my board of directors. You know, we'd talk and talk and talk, and she sat me down at the beginning and she says, Where do you want to be? What do you want to get out of this? You know, what do you want to get out of it in terms of your career and, you know, going to work every day? What do you want to get out of it financially? And so I knew what I wanted to exit at, at a minimum, okay, here or more. And of course, what I wanted to get out of it kept getting bigger and bigger every year. Yeah, so that played a big factor in, you know, knowing what I want to get out of it for me dictated the time in part, you know, if I had to have waited, I would have waited. I want you to tell us about Fab Aid, which is a $1 million student loan relief program that you announced. One of the things that I love so much about being part of Procter & Gamble is that we're able, and it's contrary to so, so many people's preconceived notions that you go to work by, you know, for a big company and you lose your heart and soul. In fact, with their support and their generosity in investment in the brand, we actually had the opportunity for the first time ever to really get beyond behind a cause campaign as a brand in a meaningful way. I mean, of course, we made contributions, but really in a meaningful way that would make a statement. But we really wanted to do something that would make a difference, that would impact young people, particularly Gen Z, and that was a tangible activity. You know, and when I say tangible, I mean, we could have given a million dollars to some federation or, you know, nonprofit that helped whatever. But then that's sort of like a black box. And for me, my own personal philanthropic giving and my 
nonprofit activities. I like to work and see the people I'm helping. So, you know, we did a lot of research and we just saw what a huge, huge issue student debt was for young people. And not only young people, our first year, we decided to focus on young people. And next year, we're actually opening it up a bit more. But, you know, affecting their choices where they live. What jobs can they and can't they take? I mean, maybe they studied something, but the pay is just so crappy in the field they're passionate about that they have to make those professional compromises in order to pay off their debt. Um, Can they afford to have children? Do they have to defer that, you know, at all? So it was really impacting. Then it became so clear that this was the cause. You know, it, it just checked all the boxes. It was really important. It was individual. I love the fact that come, you know, November when we announced we're going to see these people's faces, we're going to say, you know, we changed your lives. And that gives me goosebumps. I mean, it, to me, it's so thrilling and exciting. I love the passion that you have. You've worked in finance and consulting. You have gone from being a major force on the financial side to now being a founder and a CEO. How has your leadership style changed? Or how has your like philosophy around management changed over, over the years and in different roles? Honestly, I was like a one-person show in my prior life. I had no leadership. I was my leader. I was my employee. I had no leadership skills. And when I started, you know, having employees, I imposed on them the same expectations I imposed on myself. I don't care if you sleep tonight or not, you know, you got to get this done and you got to get it done right because I always got what I had to do right. So I had no foundation and it's actually evolved quite a bit to you know, really making sure that your team is as passionate as you are, really instilling passion and excitement about the brand. I think it's absolutely essential that you invest in your team. It's not about getting today's job done, but, you know, having a view on where they can go. And I think it's there's much more of a teaching element. And I think that's a big thing. You know, I, I used to always say, I'm CEO for a reason because I know how to do this stuff and not everybody. So really working with people and teaching them and teaching them what matters and also listening because there are multiple points of view as well. So it's being inclusive. It's investing in them. It's mentoring them and you know, trying to instill a work ethic and culture. And I didn't have to do any of that before because it was just me. Dan, do you think it's time to move to our lightning round? I do. Let's go for it. Are you a morning person or a night owl? A little of both. Pre-COVID, I was morning. Now I'm night. Last TV show you streamed or binge watched? Succession. Good one. What is like your go-to beauty product, like have to have? Ultra Repair Cream. What's the plug for it? Like, what do we, why do we need it? Because it's the one product, if you're on a desert island, it is just so amazing. It can do everything. It can almost make babies for you. It can create, it can do everything. And, and it's a fundamental part of our Fab Aid program 
10%, if you buy our ultra repair cream, now 10% of the retail proceeds will be added to First Aid Beauty's $1 million commitment. So you can be part of this wonderful, wonderful initiative we're doing. When's the last time you negotiated for yourself? P&G deal. What's your biggest vice? Vaping. My jewel. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not, that was a very honest answer and I appreciate that. (laughs) That was very funny. Lily, thank you so much. Congratulations on everything. Thanks for hanging out with us. Join us next week for another episode of Skim from the Couch. And if you can't wait until then, subscribe to our daily email newsletter that gives you all the important news and information you need to start your day. Sign up at theskim.com. That's the S-K-I-M-M dot com. Two M's for a little something extra. 